Hi, I'm Chip Sutterth, and welcome to the Two Minute Time Lord podcast, episode number 408. This is a time dilation edition, yet another one. That means we're dispensing with the format because this is an interview with Dan Starkey recorded at Long Island Who in November of 2015. With apologies, due to some audio issues, we didn't include the audience question and answer period. Here's Dan. Dan, before we go any further, I have to know, do you personally, Dan Starkey, do you hold anything against popcorn? (laughs) Popcorn is contemptible in a lower form of life. It is only a... It can feel pain, and uh, it is happy. It is a delight to crush it uh, between my motors. <laughs> this is going to be fun, because I have the feeling that I can ask any question, and Strax is going to come out at any moment. <laughs> pop out. Actually, I did make a batch of popcorn a couple of weeks ago, and I made some spicy popcorn. And uh, I put some cayenne pepper in a pan. And I didn't realize quite how hot the pan was, so it sort of produced this gushed of sort of like a very strong vapour, which actually gave me a blister on the lips, sort of gassed me. So the popcorn fought back on that occasion. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, um, so, Dan, you have been involved with Doctor Who all, since all the way back at the Centauran Stratagem when yes. you were playing uh, not exactly a comedy relief nurse character. No, uh, no. That, was that your first... Was, that was your first encounter with uh, Doctor Who um, and with the production team, right? Yes, it was. That was, that was the first episode that I did. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I've been watching the series up until then, and also w- w- the classic series I was a big fan of. But that was, yeah, that, that was the first time. Uh, that was 2007, actually, we filmed that, even though it went out in 2008. So it's a little while ago now. But, um, yeah. So um, the, you and Christopher Ryan yep. were um, evil, heavy warriors. You were, you know, gun-toting unit soldiers shooting just badasses. Yes. Yeah. Was this a kind of role that you felt like uh, your life experiences up to this point had prepared you for? Um, Well, I think a lot of acting is about using your own imagination. So certainly um, the day when I was running around a warehouse shooting unit soldiers with a laser gun, then that was basically like I'm getting paid to do this and it's like being in the playground. It's fantastic. Um, So no, it was was great because it's just... um, when I went to the audition for the very first time, I was able to go back to my parents' house and find my old copy of The Time Warrior on VHS that was in the attic, and then I just rewatched that for research purposes. And, um, and it's great, you know, so it, you know, it, 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 if I went up there feeling like I'd done about 30-odd years of research <laughs> for the actual part, which you don't know, it's not a luxury you're usually afforded when you go for an audition, but it was, um, it was great, and yeah, I found myself slipping into it very, very easily. Actually, one thing which I found myself doing, because the first the big shot um, when... Uh, links the Sontaran and reveals himself first in the Time Warrior. He takes his helmet off and then you see his hideous face and he does this thing with his tongue. He sort of goes... Which is quite unpleasant. And I just found myself doing that involuntarily when I was walking around. So all these shots, I was like running down, shooting these unit troops and start going... <laughs> and then the director sort of went, yeah, it's lovely, just lose the tongue, Dan. It's not, it's not reading. So. And yet... For your cameo in The End of Time. Yes, yeah. They, uh, there's some serious Dan Starkey Centauran tongue action. Yeah, there. and that was, that was in the script as well. So I think they picked, the up on, they picked up on it. Oh, yes, that's a, little, that's a nice little Centauran detail we can put in there. That he licks his lips in anticipation. So, uh, <laughs> yes, tasting battle. Well, yeah. uh, let's, go, let's go back for a second. And uh, the, the audition process, um, what, ha, what, what connected you? What put you in the pipeline uh, to be considered for the role? And what, was the, what, what is it like to audition 
for a role in this was the third season, the third series. Fourth, fourth, fourth. 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 I've only got three fingers. I'm you're right. Sorry. You're right. You're right. <laughs> fourth, fourth, uh, fourth, fourth series. So we're well past the oh my god, Doctor Who is actually popular yeah. stage. Yeah. Um, so how many people were you competing with for the role? What was the process like? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think I gave my then agent a prod at the right time, um, just because I think I was. I was I said, oh, it's my birthday coming up soon. I'd love to be on Doctor Who because it's my favourite program when I was a kid. Can you make that happen? And she sort of went, hmm, we'll see. But then I think it happened to coincide with when the production team was sort of casting the new Sontarans because I think they might have cast Chris Ryan first of all and made the decision they're going to be quite small. And Chris is even smaller than I am. And they'd done a full body cast of him and so I'd done a suit. So that meant they had a quite specific set of parameters so that you get a lot of actors who can fit the suit right. So I think it was between about sort of like four foot ten and five foot four. They had to sort of fill those things. Um, so that, that narrows down the pool of actors who were sort of available for it. But uh, yeah, so I read along with, with everybody else who went up for the part. I think some of whom ended up sort of like being the Sontarans who stand in the background, um, but uh, but yeah, it just it's it. I, I went there and I th- it's funny. I was saying this yesterday. If I'd known how much of my subsequent career was based on that kind of a, getting that job, I wouldn't have been able to function in the room because it would have been sort of such a, such a huge thing. Because you know, being in New York now and sort of talking to all of you, you know, if I'd known to like you know seven years down the line, I'd still be sort of uh, still be sort of talking about it. It would have been yeah very difficult to function. But that's a useful thing for any audition you go. In. All you can do is go in there and do as as well as you can on the day, and then just forget about it because who knows what will happen next. Um, but yeah, I went in there and. I gave them like two readings of the script, sort of uh, the first of which uh, was was quite just a, just a normal reading to show that I am a proper actor. I can sort of like I can sort of interpret lines and sort of like characters and that sort of thing. But yeah, that's really good. I had lots of changes and stuff. It wasn't very alien. Could you make it a bit more alien? <laughs> so then it's a case of like, how far can I actually go with this? So I was like, how about this? Is this better? <laughs> And luckily, uh, that wasn't embarrassing, and it went okay. But there was that slight moment of going, "Is this? Are they going to think this is ludicrous?" Because obviously, I wasn't wearing any prosthetic or something. So it's, um, yeah, I just and, and obviously with, with TV auditions, less so with theatre. But you sort of turn up dressing with a suggestion of how the character would look. But obviously, a full-on rubber battle suit that wasn't really in my wardrobe normally. Um, that might not have. That might have been counterproductive. Yes, so I just dressed smart. So you did. You prob- I assume you didn't know exactly how the new prosthetic would look but you no. knew what a centauran oh absolutely like. yeah so yeah. did you when you're auditioning and when you're doing the read-through do you actually pretend to put yourself in the mindset of i'm going to be under tons of latex and stuff like that did did or or yeah uh, to, to, to some extent i mean i think there's, there's lots of things i mean the, the the script as a document will give you a lot of information as to how it should be delivered so there was that great line he laughs with savage joy flings his head back and screams this isn't war this is sport so um, you're not going to do that by halves. And certainly when I did that in the read-through, it's like Russell T. Davis and it's like everyone around there it's like absolutely wet themselves laughing. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's it. You've got it. And it's a whole sort of thing of, I think, um, you know, because some people come from lots of different backgrounds when they're doing television. So, you know, in the room around the... Uh, around, um, uh, in the in the read through, they would tend to give a, a televisual sized performance, which you know wouldn't necessarily read just from the front row there. But you know, I sort of come from more of a theatre background. It's kind of like, okay, 
there's a whole room full of people. I'm going to hit the back wall. So, um, so yeah, and, and it makes it, and it makes, 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 it brings it off the page as well. So I think that was, that was my attitude going into it. So, yeah. What, tell us a little bit about your uh, theatre background and your background before you came to Doctor Who. Uh, what were yeah, some well, I, I was only, actually, I was only about a, a year and a half out of drama school when, um, when I actually sort of got, that was, it was my first television job. That, um, that, I, that I read for as well, um, and I got, so that was great. So again, that was a weird thing of actually going, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've done about 30 odd years of research for this, so that's, that's nice <laughs> to have got that. But it was one of those ones where I really, really wanted it. And that doesn't always work, but certainly it was that whole sort of thing of, at least I've given it my best shot as a, as a kind of thing. You know, just, just to be seen for it was fantastic. Um, but um, yeah, but I, I think um, just in the UK, I think it's different in the States because you have so much, you know, it's, it's economies of scale. You've got a much bigger industry. You can make a living being a screen actor or just a theatre actor or whatever, whereas in the UK, because it's smaller, then everyone tends to do a bit of everything. So, um, and certainly my training was more... I went to the Bristol Vic Theatre School where, um, yeah, lots, lots of our training was very traditional, um, which is great because then you can just, sort of like, to tone it down. And with lots of television, I think you find yourself learning on the job, really. Um, we had sort of screen acting classes at drama school, but that was about a week in, like, two years or so. So it was kind of... Um, so, yeah, lo lots of things where you're, where you're learning on the job. And I think certainly st stepping on set in a full-on Sontaran costume in prosthetics, I would have been a lot, lot more nervous if it had been my actual face because I had so much to deal with physically getting through the day in this ridiculous rubber outfit um, that, um, that that was enough to contend with, really. So actually, sort of, actually the acting side of things was, was probably... You know, it was, I, was, I was less nervous about that than I would have been otherwise. So, um. uh, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure... Being reminded, as you you know, you you mentioned that this is this is sport line and all this yeah. stuff. You've it's been a pleasure remind being reminded of the fact that you haven't always done Strax. Yes. You uh, yeah. and and your early Centauran performances were uh, more traditionally bad guy. Yes. Yeah. Um, Neve McIntosh and I were talking a couple of years ago at the Gallifrey One convention, and we were talking about how it seems that like uh, the TV show Babylon 5 about 20 years ago, it's, it's, it can be a really nice thing to get a role as a character in a prosthetic because when that race comes back, you know, they, if they need another Centaurian, if they need another Silurian, well, they've already got the mold. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, yeah. And, and I think they're always like keen that's like any production costs they can narrow down, that's always very good. So it's like getting a full sculpt or something. That, that's another couple of days for the prosthetics people in the workshop to do that. The actor has to be booked to go down there. So certainly it's cheaper hiring the same person again. So it's very, it's handy from that point of view. So <laughs> they've got a rubber suit that fits me. So, <laughs> so and, and that, it, that, is, that is all great and well and good for um, recurring, I think they called, on, on, the, on the old B5 show, they called the, like the Drazi repertory company or something like that the people who who played those roles but you and Neve yeah. had the opportunity to create new a, a, a specific new recurring character yeah um, totally different totally well yeah totally different uh, a, co a comedy role that has stuck for several years now yeah. so uh, what what made them decide to come to you for Strax and um, tell us a little bit about how the character was developed and how you were how you were recruited to play this comedy character. Well, I suppose it was just it was simply um, the fact that I, I got it. I got invited back, uh, you know, so once in the uh, in David's last episode to slightly do that cameo as a Sontaran, and um, I think I think likewise. Oh, 
if Dan's free, we'll get him in because, you know, also the fact that I, I know about the programme as well. So I was, I was able to, on my first day when they were doing sort of uh, uh, Doctor Who Confidential, it was obvious that I could speak fluent geek when it came to all the kind of, um, when it came to all the, uh, all, all, all the interviews and stuff. And I, and, I, and I knew my stuff. So I think they, they, they like that. And I think everyone who works on the programme now has been a fan as well. So it's amazing how generationally it's gone on that sort of people who sort of like wrote stories in their exercise books at school about Doctor Who now write for the programme. And it's brilliant in that way. So I think there's that element of handing on to some people who, who sort of like know have got a love for the actual material. Um, but no, when I sort of got, so, oh, they want you back to sort of do a, do a Sontaran character in Doctor Who, great. But I thought it might have just been one line, or in the previous season, you know, Chris Ryan had sort of like been back just for one line or so uh, in the sort of coalition of baddies mm-hmm. in uh, the Penopticon Opens. Um, and um, yeah, so I had no sort of expectations or whatever. And then I got the script, and it's like, oh, that's interesting. And the character just, just, just did leap off the page because um, I think that's really fun as a kind of character, that he's a Sontaran, but it's a nice twist on it because he's a reluctant ally of the Doctor. And I'm quite a sucker for that kind of, um, that kind of plot line, like in A Good Man Goes to War, the kind of Blues Brothers, Jason the Argonauts kind of thing of getting the gang back together. So you've got all these characters that have a backstory as well. And... You know, they, and then and they, all, they all get sort of uh, grouped together as well. And so it's, it's nice having an allusion to it. It's a new character, but at the same time, he has a history that, uh, with the Doctor previously. So it was nice. That fires the imagination, even though it's not made explicit, and it's never been made explicit exactly what has, um, has led to sort of like this, this penury that he's serving. It's, it's a nice thing to play. And, and just, it's great comic writing, so it came off the page as well. And just in that first story as well, he's got a nice, uh, he's got a nice death scene that we just saw then. Nice to be reminded of it too. And, um, and yeah, it was just, it's, just, it's just a gift to actually do. So, yeah. so you get the script and you're turning the pages you're, uh, are, are you one of those actors who counts your lines? Um, I wouldn't say count forensically going through <laughs> it if there's, that, if there's only about three of them then yeah, you can't help but do it and you get to the point where you find out that your character is offering to assist Amy Pond with lactation yes <laughs> And this is like, this is like, it's you, it, it's, it's, how did you, how did you react when you, you saw the extent of how comedic this role was going to be? Well, I thought, especially with that line, um, I thought, yeah, that's, that's going to be remembered. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to follow me around. That's going to be on t-shirts or something as well. But it, it was like, this is the, well, this is, well, that's a great line. And it's like, I can produce magnificent quantities of lactic fluid. That's, um, yeah, that's, that, that was a joyous line to deliver. And also at the read through, everyone's sort of collapsed as well, because it's the beautiful thing about it that he doesn't remotely think that's funny. <laughs> he takes his duties as a nurse incredibly seriously because he's a Sontaran warrior and he prosecutes them with the same ferocity that he would do any other kind of military sort of uh, military duty. So it's great that kind of mismatch. You know, I think I was saying yesterday that actually he's essentially quite well-meaning as a character, but he's psychotic. So it's that, um, you know, I will crush you to death and destroy you is his way of sort of going, yeah, well, thank you for your contribution. I've taken it on board. Um, and, you know, he's actually polite you know, within those sort of things. And all those kind of scenes which he's got with Clara, you know, would you like some water? Here you go. I just finished washing it. You know, all of those sort of things. He's trying to be helpful. And it's everybody else who's actually got the problem. He hasn't. So it's, um, yeah, he's, yes, it's, it's, it's an interesting mindset to get into, that sort of person out of, out, of their, out of their comfort zone significantly. Did you have any expectation that you'd be called back? I mean, you died. No, no, not at all, not at all. Um, 
And yeah, I think I think when my agent sort of came through, yeah, it, it abstracts again. It's like I, I I thought I was dead, but clearly not. And and we shot that season out of sequence as well. So I, I thought I was going in there. It was a classic way in which Doctor Who works as well. I thought I was only going in to do one episode, and it turned out to be three, including the Christmas special. So that worked out nicely. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I so we we did the read-through and shooting for the Crimson Horror first. And so I went to her going, right, I've met Clara already, and I appear to be alive. And um, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss went, yeah, don't worry, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm alive and I'm okay with that? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. We'll explain it at some point. And, um, <laughs> and then I think when we were shooting the name of the Doctor, I think a couple of months afterwards, we actually shot that little Easter egg, the, um, which you saw there, which I, I don't think I've seen since, since we shot it, the... Um, uh, demons run two days after, so I come. Hey, thank you for your offer, but I cannot take it up to your putrescent alien filth. Um, where sort of Vassar and Jenny invite Strax to Victorian London. Um, so yeah, it's timey wimey. Things eventually get explained. And you just got to go with it. So it's a, yeah, yeah. Um, talk, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your working relationship with uh, Neve and Katrin? Katrin or Katrin? Katrin. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and um, just. The the Paternoster gang. Um, now I I love the Paternoster gang. I want that. I want the spinoff. Um, <laughs> hey. But the th- the three of you have undeniable chemistry, um, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. No, well, it's straight. Well, like, like with a good man goes to war. I think it was nice in that you had that kind of that bring the band back together kind of plot. You had these characters who seem fully realized within their own like, world and their own like adventures and time and so it was nice that we got the chance to sort of come back and actually sort of uh, and recreate that in several ep- other episodes i mean so neve and i kind of bonded in the back of a in the back of a taxi at four o'clock in the morning going to a prosthetic school because it's like hello yeah, you again yeah hi how's it going yeah high five it's five o'clock in the morning and we're and we're being glued into lots of rubber so that, that tends to bond you to a person because like I, you know we were both sort of like sort of you know, sort of buoying each other up on, you know, a long 15-hour day. It's good, it's good to have a mate there who's sort of like, a, who's, who's going through the same thing as you. And so mm-hmm. that, that was very bonding. And I think Catherine and Eve had done a, had worked on something before, so that they, they, they knew each other before we, um, we sort of went into, um, uh, into filming. But yeah, it, I, th- I think it's just this, this nice little kind of, um, this nice little gang that came together in that, in that, in that one episode. And I think, um, yeah, we all, we all get on fine as well together. You know, so Catherine and I went to Australia with a couple of years ago for a convention and we were 30 hours in a plane together and we didn't get on each other's nerves. So I think that's the thing. We, we get on fine with each other. So it's, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's helpful to have people that you sort of trust in those kind of, in those kind of positions and stuff. But, um, now, yeah. now, I got to, I got to uh, listen to, uh, l- listen to some of, one of the po- podcast interviews that you did. Yeah. Um, earlier and you talked a little bit about the difference in Strax is sort of like comes in as like a surgical strike so to speak with lines and funny lines um, and things like that it's a different it's a different you and Neve particularly have different jobs yeah. Um, and uh, could you? Uh, I'd, I'd love it if you'd uh, repeat that a little bit. For yeah, sure. Well, I, I, I think I think to the way in which so like quite a lot of the scenes have been written in the last few episodes of the Paternosters is that Neve, because she's a great detective, um, you know, Madame Vassar is a great detective. She will have reams and reams of uh, difficult exposition to do in techno babble, and then I will have a gag in that scene. So she's got half a page to learn. I have a line. And mine is a joke, <laughs> so I've got to land that. And usually it's good comic writing, so it's not particularly difficult to do that. But sort of, um, 
Neve has to work a lot harder than I do, and everyone remembers my line. So it's it's a lot more economical from from my point of view, the kind of, the kind of writing. But I think I think it's 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 interesting those kind of kind of things because you know sometimes inevitably when you're filming television you get line revisions at very last minute. So. Or new scenes which come in the night, the night before as well. So especially with sort of like, a, we get the pink pages as they're called, and it goes through different sort of stages, pink, blue, green, you know, all it's indigo or whatever, so it's completely illegible. Um, but uh, sometimes when you get sort of like script through the night before, so like Neve gets like a, a page of sort of, uh, no, we change the plot slightly, and then she would have to learn that, and I was like, go, ah, oh, yes, but perhaps I should destroy it. And then, yeah, so so from my point of view, it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot more straightforward. But um, yeah, that, that, that's the kind of dynamic that we're working with, but... Yeah, I, I, I get lots of fun stuff to do in each of my scripts, you know, so people have asked me, you know, what's your favourite episode, what's the, what's the best bit you've done, but in each episode, when I start to think about it, I've just got, you know, I get gags, I get stunts to do, I never thought I'd do stunts, you know, when I was, when I, when I was training as an actor, there were lots of other blokes who I left um, drama school with who were sort of, you know, six foot tall, sort of very sort of action hero type, I never thought I would be doing action, action scenes, but uh, yeah, put a, rubber, put, you know, put a rubber chest on me, and I suddenly looked like a hero, so it's <laughs> much easier to do, so... Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's nicely written from that point of view. Uh, one of the chilling moments um, uh, in your role as Strax is in the name of the Doctor when time starts getting undone. Yes. And all of a sudden, you're slipping back into playing the kind of Suntaran you yeah. started as. Uh, was that challenging? Was that fun to sort of break the mold and become nasty? Uh, no, nasty abs- again? absolutely, it's great yeah. because that is, I mean that's that kind of that kind of all is, all is lost moment when sort of like Vastra loses Jenny, she just winks out of existence, and then Strax suddenly becomes evil as well. And I think I mean I think in Doctor Who they're, they're quite careful as well because it is aimed at a family audience in the UK. So like there's, there's there's there are quite specific parameters as to how far you can go with the darkness. But then it was still kind of like still alien scum, you know, still an unreconstructed. Santaran who wants to kill Vastra because it's got to be that moment for her where it's, it's, it's life or death. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that was quite exciting to, to, do, to do at that point. And um, yeah. Last, last Christmas, literally last Christmas, yes. <laughs> you get a call from, uh, you get a call or you get a message from your agent or something like that. In my head, in my head, you have this experience where they want you back and they want to, they want you, they want to show your face you're going to be an elf. <laughs> so, uh, tell tell us a little bit about uh, being brought in to well, be one of Santa's elves. Yeah, it was great. Well, it was even more face to face than that because I went to the rap party for that season for series eight, and um, I think we were going on a. <laughs> it was one of those strange little sort of jollies that we had as part as part of the, as part of the evening's festivities, where I'd had a couple of glasses of some BBC fizzy wine, and then uh, we were all having a chat with Brian Minchin, who was a producer, and it's like, oh no, I, th- I think I can tell you that we might want to want you back for the Christmas special, but but with your own face, and I was like, oh, that's fantastic, and we were going around this strange boat around Cardiff Bay. So, yeah, which is which is not very big, but it was a weird thing. I was like sitting there with like fizzy wine, going around part of Cardiff Bay on a like boat, swaying like that. And Stephen Moffat was sort of sitting on like a couple of chairs away, just looking a little bit sort of like, <laughs> so like, yeah, with, with his uh, looking a little bit sort of queasy and that sort of thing. Oh, Stephen, tell Dan about that. And could tell was like, oh well, because I, th- I think Stephen likes to play his cards quite close to his chest because always he's writing and rewriting stuff in his head. And then he sort of said, yeah, yeah, well, we might want sort of Father Christmas, and then it'd sort of be an elf. 
So it was, it was very cagey, and then sort of like, as uh, the rest of the, you know, the, the following morning, I was like, was that something that I kind of hallucinated <laughs> as, a kind of, as a kind of thing in a ship, so sort of like drinking some, you know, some slightly odd fizzy wine? And then, was it real? Was it? And then sort of like, I mentioned it to my agent, and then luckily they did actually get a call. Because sometimes you think, yeah, this is just, this is just like a, a strange weird dream I've had. But then it was confirmed a couple of weeks later. Oh, good, that, well, that was real. Excellent. So, um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was very exciting seeing, seeing the script. And you and uh, your, your co-elf. And, yes. And yes. What, was, what was his Nathan name? McMullen. Yeah. I'm sorry? Nathan McMullen. Nathan McMullen. Yes. And, of course, Nick Frost. You, yeah. are, you are the courier in Ives. <laughs> Santa Claus and the elves. You know, you are playing. Uh, you you are you are playing for obvious reasons. The, just not even an alien. You, you are the uber elf. You know, you, you you guys are perfect elves. Yes. Yeah. That, that Did, was definitely a, the production team decided it has to be a proper elf, like you'd see in. Yeah. Did you feel Did you feel silly on the set? I I think I've gone past. I've, since I've played a potato in a spacesuit, a hobgoblin, a cyclops in a computer, I think I've gone past the stage of feeling silly a long time ago. Lots of my drama school training was about sort of, uh, you know, we did, we did the line, the witch in the wardrobe. So I was playing an evil reindeer at one point. You know? If you want to be, if you're worried about looking silly, then don't be an actor. It comes with a territory. So, yeah. Um, and before we get to uh, questions, uh, I'd like to ask about Wizards vs. Aliens and your experience on that show. You're doing a lot. You, you, you've been doing a lot of prosthetic work. Um, to, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Wizards vs. Aliens, and if you could also talk about um, how it feels to work in prosthetics versus without. You know. Yeah. Well, it, it's very interesting. It's a very specific kind of technical sort of skill. I think, as I said before, I think if I yeah, my first job on television was Doctor Who doing a job in a very heavy prosthetic appliance. So there's lots of things I would have been worrying about, perhaps about how I was coming across and how sort of how big my performance was going to be if it wasn't the fact that that wasn't my face on screen, at least for the uh, for the Sontaran Strasium. And it, 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 it's very strange. Yeah, the first time I had the rubber head glued on me and saw this face in the mirror being painted up. So, you know, it's quite a neutral colour, and then the prosthetic technicians, they will paint it up. So it looks, it blooms into life in front of you. It's an extraordinary feeling. And likewise, the first time you saw me as Randall Moon, the Hobgoblin, again, it's a very neutral sort of pink mask they put on there, and then they sort of paint it up so that it starts to look more like mottled flesh. It's an extraordinary sort of picture that blossoms into life in front of you. And it's very odd. It's, it's quite uncanny seeing a face in the mirror that isn't yours, that's moving to your facial movements as well and doesn't have... You try and do one facial expression with your face and it doesn't read as that through the mask. So it's an odd technical thing to get used to. Um, so we were doing some publicity shots um, for the Sontaran uh, stratagem with me, David Tennant, Catherine Tate and Freema. And, uh, OK, look scary. And I start doing a scary face. So like, no, 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 you're looking nice. Stop doing that. And then I just look neutral. Oh, yeah, great, that's horrible. So <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really odd thing to get your head around, actually, how, how the mask is motivated. You're learning how to choreograph the mask as much as you are acting through it. Um, so, so, yeah, whereas when I was doing Last Christmas with my own face, it's kind of like, I can hear people. I can just react off things. So it's much more like acting is normally. And, uh, and also with Nick Frost, who's an absolute dude, he's great. Um, he, was, you know, he wasn't exactly improvising around his lines, but he was lots of looser with, with some of them. So that gives you carte blanche to actually sort of just, just react off them as well. It was a very, very different experience and, and a very enjoyable one. But um, yeah, they're, they're two slightly different things. It's a very technical process, learning how the prosthetic is motivated and, and how it appears on screen. And certain ways in which you hold your head will show the fact that it's a mask 
a lot more than if you don't. So there's certain ways in which I have to move my body so, to make sure that doesn't happen. And, you know, so being aware whether... Like with Randall Moon, the Hobgoblin, you saw there, if I don't point my nose right at the camera lens, his eyes, one of his eyes disappears because the nose is so big. <laughs> and likewise with Strax, if I dip my head below a certain point, then his eyes disappear because his brow ridge is so heavy. And so lots of, you know, screen acting is about what the eyes are doing so there's lots of things to think about in that, in that kind of respect so actually it was a very good sort of technical thing actually acting with my own face as a result now is, is, you know, <laughs> I think I'm used to a lot of, lot more sort of stringent parameters as to what to do so yeah Now you have been a centaurian in a completely different context uh, through your work with Big Finish mm. and yes. you have an audio that has just come out uh, as bringing Strax into the Big Finish universe yes, with Jago, yeah. Lightfoot and Strax yep all the um, new together go. <laughs> so, is it difficult to take on the to do these prosthetic laden roles? I don't think you're going to sit in for four hours worth of makeup for an audio. No, you can have um, a cup of coffee and a donut and then go in the booth. It's fine. <laughs> so, how much work do you have to do to find a Centauran when you don't have the prosthetics to sort of help you? Well, I think, as everything, it comes with a script and also with, with things like Big Finish. I mean, at least their license until this year has been very much the classic series is all that we can do and anything that impinges on new series, that's outside our frame of reference. And it's just this year when they've had, it's, there's been a crossover of the two. So what I did was listen very much, again, I went back to the Time Warrior, the Santaran experiment, and I listened to Kevin Lindsay's original voice doing that. And it's quite different from the Santarans are now. It's got a certain rasp to it, and it's, it's on the catch of the throat. So, uh, a whole day of doing this is... That, that, so it, gives, it gives you a very specific sort of um, a specific voice to replicate, and then, you know, because sometimes with the big finished ones, I've been doing a whole room of five or six Santarans talking to each other, which is hilarious. You know, so, one will talk slightly deeper, and then one of them will be up here, one of them has a moustache. You know, so, all these... <laughs> There are always also vocal ticks that I can give them, but ultimately I'm talking to myself for, um, yeah, so it's weird. It's like schizophrenizing yourself slightly, and, and at the end of the day, you need to reach for the cough syrup because it's, it's a little bit raspy. So, um, yeah, but it's great fun. But you got to bring in, but you got to be Strax in all of his yes, belligerent yes. glory. Absolutely. Um, um, I can hear myself speak. That's nothing with Strax because the, the, the prosthetic is so big. Often my hearing is very muffled, and that's the same with Neve as well as Madame Bastra. Both of us, and Catherine often acts as a kind of like interpreter between the rest of the people on set. He was making a joke, don't worry about it. And we go, oh yes, good, good, thank you, well done, that was a joke, good. It's like someone's slightly deaf elderly relatives are kind of like (laughs) in the corner. It's it's an interesting dynamic. For those who are possibly not familiar with the Jago and Lightfoot line, or uh, who may not be up on their big finish, uh, tell us a little bit about that that, uh, story. Yes, well, Jago and Lightfoot are two characters from an episode of one episode of the classic series, The Talons of Wang Chiang, which is from 1977. It's a Tom Baker episode set in Victorian London, and it's got as many periods, sort of like cliches, tropes, details as you could possibly imagine in one story. There's like a, the villainous tongs. There are kind of uh, there's there's a Phantom of the Opera type vampire who comes out the series. There's a giant rat. There's Sherlock Holmes references. It's 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 absolutely every single sort of like Victorian sort of cliche and then some. So in one episode, it's fantastic. Um, they didn't have that many actual genuine Chinese actors working, in, working um, as equity members in the 1970s. So there's, yeah, watching it now, so like it's, it's, there, is, there are certain aspects of it where you think, which haven't aged quite as well, but as a whole, the story's fantastic. Um, and Jago and Lightfoot are two characters from that. And um, uh, Henry Gordon Jago is a uh, Victorian music hall proprietor. And, um, and uh, Professor Lightfoot is a pathologist. 
And they only come together in the, that's the last two episodes of a six-episode series, um, helping the Doctor in his fight against this villainous 51st century war criminal, Magnus Greel, who's, uh, who's come back in the past to wreak havoc in Victorian London. But they've got a real nice chemistry as two characters, and so Big Finish have done about ten series now of, uh, of, of stories with them fighting various different, uh, various different rum events in Victorian London. Um, you know, aliens and sort of like uh, different types of skullduggery. And, uh, and yeah, and then obviously the Doctor's been to Victorian London several times, so there's lots of different characters in the Doctor universe in Victorian London, but now <clears throat> Strax is, is carrying out his own investigation and happens to meet Jago and Lightfoot doing one of theirs as well. So it's a lovely crossover in between the old series and the new series. But it's fair to say that the talents of Wayne Chiang, that subset the paradigm for how Doctor Who does the 19th century thereafter. That's, it's all to do with like Sherlock Holmes, period details, Gronk and Yol, it's, it's fantastic. Dan, if I didn't know better, I'd say that you're a little familiar with classic Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say, yes. Um, my last question for you, and then we'll open it up for questions, is uh, tell us about how you approached being a Doctor Who fan, how you came to Doctor Who fandom, and what, and what it means to you to actually participate in it now. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, so I think I was just a massive fan of it when I was a kid. Um, well, the, about the first couple of adventures I remember were some Tom Baker's last ones. So I remember watching Legopolis when that first came out, when I must have been about four, three or four years old or something. And then because, uh, uniquely, where, wherever the Doctor Who was shown around the world, in Britain they never used to repeat it because it was the BBC and they had strange attitudes, that sort of thing. So the, Tom Baker had been the Doctor for such a long time. There was a whole generation of kids who hadn't sort of realised there were other actors who had played the Doctor before. So they had a repeat series called The Five Faces of Doctor Who that I must have seen when I was about four or five. And um, I think something about that captured my imagination. So there's this character who could be different people in different times. So there was an unearthly child, and there was the Crotons, and sort of carnival of monsters and stuff. And, and yeah, that, that absolutely captured my imagination. And then Peter Davison's first series, first season started, and yeah, that absolutely hooked my imagination as, as, a, as, a, kind of, as a kind of thing. And um, yeah, and then it was all the 80s Doctors. I was the one kid in cast who wouldn't stop going on about Doctor Who. It was like, oh, Daniel's talking about Doctor Who again, miss. So, um, but yeah, and then it's sort of... I remember, sort of like just, just in the last couple of series, when Sylvester McCoy um, sort of took over, the Rem- Remembrance of the Daleks, that was an amazing episode because all of a sudden, everyone in the playground at, sort of, uh, at school was talking about, Doctor Who was really amazing! You know about that, tell us about it! And so it was this great thing to actually sort of go, ah, yes, yeah, Doctor Who's really cool, and I know everything about it. So. And then it stopped being on the television for 20-odd years. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it was synonymous with my childhood. It stopped being on the television in my first year of secondary school. So, yeah, it's definitely synonymous with my childhood. And being part of it now as an adult is just fantastic. It's, it's, it's this bizarre things, how these things which absolutely capture imagination as a child. Now, my inner eight-year-old often does a cartwheel when it's like, ah, yes, and now I'm doing an episode with Jaguar and Lightfoot. Yay! So it's, it's, it's very exciting. Thanks for listening to the Two Minute Time Lord podcast, Time Dilation Edition. Next time, my other interview from Long Island Who featuring Noel Clark and audience questions and answers because we actually had a microphone out there this time. More episodes of 2MTL are available at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com or on iTunes or wherever else you find podcasts, maybe even on Google one of these days. I'm on Twitter and Facebook if you look for numeral 2 Minute Time Lord. Thanks for listening. Back soon.